0: Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and today I'm talking with Dr. Aaron Stollard, the founder and director of Stollard Scientific Editing. We'll talk about how and why he transitioned his academic career into an editing business, and also about his recent work in activism, politics, and policy in New Zealand. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. So today I'm talking to Dr. Aaron Stallard. Aaron is now the director and founder of Stallard Scientific Editing, Uh, so he is my employer. Um, He also has a long academic background in the tectonic and structural geology fields. Um, He has also done a lot of activism and has recently uh, stood or run for office as a political candidate. I'm really excited to talk to you today, Aaron, and thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Awesome. So I guess I wanted to start with kind of how you got interested in science and earth science and your educational and academic background, if you could just give me kind of an overview of that.
1: Sure. Well, I think uh, in terms of science, I think from quite early on, I was a bit of an observer and quite shy and quiet, so I like to see how things work and watch. And I think at school um, you sort of find how your brain works and what things you're comfortable with. And I was really comfortable with science and numbers and so on. So I enjoyed that um, at school. And then I knew I wanted to go to university and I didn't know what I wanted to study. So I took a uh, as large a range of subjects as I could. And I found that I loved geology. So that was quite a simple process, just um, what appealed to me. And so I uh, studied that as an undergraduate and then a master's degree and then eventually a PhD and that's in some ways it's a, just one of those cases of what you love you can do well at and you can you know progress with.
0: Mm-hmm. And you so you went to the University of Canterbury for your undergraduate degree is that right?
1: That's right uh, undergraduate and master's degree.
0: Okay yep. and then did you go to James Cook in Australia for your PhD?
1: Yeah, so, so some of the papers I've been reading and that were important in my master's degree uh, were written by a professor in Australia. And um, so when I finished my master's, I was applying for PhD scholarship. So I applied at that uh, particular university and with that um, researcher as a potential supervisor, um, just based on his research and so on. So yeah, I ended up going to James Cook University in Queensland, moving to the tropics uh, for four years, which was quite a change.
0: Yeah, did you like living in the tropics?
1: Uh, for most of the year, <laughs> for most of the year, um, you don't even bother looking at the weather forecast because it's about you know twenty six degrees, twenty seven degrees, um, sunny and you know lovely and warm and calm with a sea breeze. So, and then of course there's a few months of the year It's the wet season where it's very sticky and hot um, and occasional downpours, which is quite exciting as well, though to be honest. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, and I'm always really interested in like the diving in that part of the world. Did you ever get to do any diving?
1: Yes, yes, off to the Great Barrier Reef. So where we, we live, the reef was offshore about a, a bit distant, so you just had to go a bit further north to around Cairns, and it's, the reef's a lot closer. It's quite easy to get out there for day trips and snorkel or dive and just um, or enjoy all the wonder it was the Great Barrier Reef.
0: Wow, awesome, yeah. I've only done a couple of dives on the Great Barrier Reef, but they blew my mind, and I assume the reef was actually in much better shape back then when you were out there.
1: I assume so. That was, when was that? Prior to 2000, and I think the bleaching events have really only started in the past, you know, really started getting serious in the past decade or so.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, and so after your PhD, did you... You did two postdocs. One of them was in Japan. Did you go straight to Japan from James Cook?
1: Yeah. So as I was um, finishing up the PhD, had two good deadlines. Um, One was the birth of our first child.
0: um,
1: And (laughs) I made that deadline by about two weeks, um, (laughs) if you call that a deadline. (laughs) Um, And then also, yeah, coming towards the end, I was applying for postdocs and we had while I was in Australia, visiting researcher from Japan and, um, so I applied for a scheme to do a postdoc in Japan with him as a supervisor. And that scheme was open to Australian residents. So being a, a New Zealander, I, I, I had to apply for Australian residency and got that and then headed off to Japan shortly um, after finishing the PhD.
0: Wow. And taking your family and young child with you, I assume?
1: That's right. So Jacob was about four months old when we went there. Wow. Yeah he he was um kind of blondish and a bit gingery haired and you know blue eyes so he was a bit of a a sensation um and <laughs> caused a lot of disruption because um if we go into some kind of apartment store or department store sorry um all the, the staff were almost always female and they would just run around and Japanese for cute is kawaii so they'd be yelling that repeatedly and he thought his name was kawaii. Oh apparently. My
0: goodness. <laughs> <laughs> wow and what part of Japan were you in? Uh,
1: so this was in Shizuoka it's a smaller city of about 400,000 people and it's on the Pacific coast about an hour and a half south of Tokyo so quite a pleasant climate and on a good day a clear day you could see Mount Fuji and they grow Where we stayed, they were growing um, green tea and mandarins are really big there as well. Oh, wow.
0: Did did you, were you able to learn Japanese while you were there at all?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, And strangely enough, at school, I learned a little bit of Japanese, which I only took because I wanted to go to a school that was further from my house for which I needed to go on a bus. And the bus was only free if you took a course that wasn't available at the closest school. So that was Japanese.
0: Wow. (laughs) That's funny (laughs) and great. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I I know we do. It seems like the bus system here for schools is really, like in the U.S., you all have access to um, school buses if you're at a publicly funded school, or at least that's the the goal. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's funny that you had to take a different class. But I mean, great, I guess. Worked out very well for you.
1: Yeah, coincidence, but good.
0: Yeah. Okay, so then did you come then back to the Uni- University of Canterbury or did you do anything else in between your postdoc in Japan and coming to Christchurch again?
1: Um, no, just from Japan straight back to Christchurch. So, yeah, while Japan was ending and um, while we were pregnant again, I had another deadline to meet. <laughs> well, Actually, of course, they don't let you fly once you've passed about eight months pregnant or something like that. So we we had to think about make sure we could leave Japan before we're not allowed to leave Japan. Um, Yeah, and then I had a, like a New Zealand government postdoc back in Christchurch for three years and then was able to mix it up with some contract teaching, lecturing work and taking field trips and so on, which is really one of the most fun things you can do as a geologist is to take students on field trips for like five days at a time.
0: Yeah, that sounds awesome. So was that where where were the field trips? Was that all in New Zealand?
1: Yes, we so Christchurch is on the um, east coast of the South Island, and most of our field trips that we did would, were on the west coast, which is only about three hours away. But you'd cross over the Southern Alps, and um, we had a field like a research station there with accommodation, and we would go out each day and it's fantastic geology and all enjoy ourselves.
0: Wow, that sounds lovely. Okay, so you, the, so far, you know, this sounds like a pretty standard academic background. So I do not know how you decided to start an editing business. And I would love to hear how that came about and what that was like to get off the ground.
1: Yes. Okay. Um. So the, at that time, as we discussed, I was, I was doing a postdoc in Christchurch, and that was coming to an end. And I always wanted to be a like a lecturer, university lecturer, and that looked like the timing was pretty good, because um, as my postdoc was ending, there was a a vacancy in the department for someone in the field of like structure, tectonics, metamorphism, and so on. And New Zealand is small, not many um, universities, and really during the uh, 60s and 70s, the universities grew quite a bit, and we hired a lot of new staff, and they generally came from the UK, and they they, stayed in those positions for a long time. So positions are really rare so when this one came up I thought "Oh, here's a good chance but I missed out so then I started to think of all kinds of crazy jobs I could do or schemes because I didn't want to go back overseas which is where I would have been more likely to get a geology type job but eventually I naively thought I would start um, an editing business um, not knowing I felt you know maybe they don't really exist because while well as living in Japan I would help my Japanese and um, Chinese colleagues edit improve the language of their manuscripts before they tried to publish them. So I told um, my colleague in Japan about this. And he said, Ah, yeah, well, there are some very big editing companies that we almost all of us in Japan use. And he sent me the URL of one of them in particular, and I realized, uh, it's already a big deal. And I should actually learn uh, about it before I start a business. So I did freelance work for about a year with quite a number of companies, and then set up my own business, which was actually quite easy. It's, it's not actually a big deal.
0: Oh, sweet, yeah, I guess New Zealand especially is notoriously easy for setting up a small business.
1: Yeah, it is, like the paperwork is just so simple. Um, all I had to do, I had a website made, did a minimum of paperwork, which took literally a few days to get processed, cost almost nothing to register the company. Um, and of course, in this kind of business, it's all it's a service, so there's no stock, And initially I was just doing the work myself and then my uh, colleagues in Japan and China sort of told their friends that um, the business was underway. And, you know, for a lot of people, these researchers, it's the best situation for them because it's somebody who has a personal recommendation, who has a PhD and research experience in the field and is a native speaker and is keen to do the work. So clients started coming on in
0: yeah wow okay so not that hard i'm surprised i guess because i feel like i cannot think of very many or maybe zero other people that are that came from an academic background that started a business so
1: yeah geologists do um not so so much in new zealand but certainly in countries with big mining sectors as they work as consultants and so on and of course if you're in a field of like biotechnology or genetics you a lot of researchers do that because the commercialization of their work is just routine
0: yeah that's true yeah and i guess the the field of science that i've mostly been involved in is different to commercialize i guess wow and so did you find it like sad hard fine great leaving academia like what are your feelings about i mean i guess you didn't fully leave it obviously because you're very much involved in the publication industry but yeah i i didn't realize that like Yeah, of course, in New Zealand, there's not a lot of academic positions. And so, yeah, if you miss out on the one that you want, you kind of have to think bigger, I guess. And yeah, how do you find your role now? Do you like, are you glad that this happened?
1: Um, Now, yeah, very glad. And quite soon after missing out on the lectureship and starting the business, I was very glad. So initially it was kind of devastating. You have this dream you've held for a long time and it looks like it really cannot you know, come to anything. And as you pointed out, if, if I was living in North America and Europe, there'd be other opportunities to get a position, either another postdoc or a, a lectureship. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, it's like, Oh, complete blank, what do I do now? Uh, and We did consider some really crazy schemes. (laughs) Makes it sound dodgy. Um, Well, I shouldn't say schemes. I know.
0: Um, I feel like um, to American ears, the word scheme always seems like a little nefarious, but it's used all the time here. And I'm always like, oh, gosh, the word scheme is so strange.
1: Yes. Okay. Well, what I meant was um, business opportunities, which might also sound a little dodgy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But not as dodgy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, but eventually, I thought, well, what are my strengths? You know, what do I have to offer and my skills? And so obviously, it's a, a decent knowledge of geology. And I always enjoyed language and words. And I had been helping, as I said, um, colleagues in in Asia with editing the manuscripts before they sent them to journals. And of course, there's, there's massive demand for that. So I thought, well, that that's the way to go. Um, so it was really exciting setting up a business because I knew nothing at all about it. And as I said, it, it's it's not too difficult, it's probably not too difficult in most countries. And you just have to go through that process. Um, well, you don't have to go through it. Um, when you start a business, like what I'm actually doing, <laughs> who might my clients be? Um, what do they want? What do I have to offer? How much should I charge? How are they going to pay me? You know, and, and what kind of processes should I set up to make it uh, run smoothly? How can I make an invoice, just very really practical things all and it's I find that very really exciting setting up all those systems. Um, so I'm not a business person at all, but I did set up this business once and um, have been running it since, and it's, it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so eventually you started getting more freelance editors. Now the business is, uh, I don't know, a healthy size as far as I can tell. Um, and I guess I'm curious, cause I know that you've done a lot of activism. So I'm curious when you started thinking about doing some activist stuff? Like when did that come online? Is that, yeah, give me an overview.
1: Sure. Okay. So, I mean, your, your original comment is, is quite right. I had to take on freelance editors from the moment. For example, I received a manuscript in the field of genetics and it obviously made no sense to me. <laughs> so very quickly I had to take on staff um, and then take on more and more geology staff and so on. And then, um, activism and, and so on. I guess as a geologist, you 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 know you should know something about the earth and the atmosphere and, and the history and context. And I think context is so important because you know how things have been in the past, including the distant past and recent past and you know about change. So you know, trends and directions that we're going in and, and where it will lead. So I think sometimes people hear a statistic about the environment, uh, perhaps numbers of animals in a certain species or something and they say okay that's something that's happened but in fact it's still happening it's we're, we're talking about trends rather than something that's fixed in the past so yeah i think as a geologist um it's difficult to ignore all that um, and also in the business just reading and editing a lot of manuscripts from different countries on different subjects relating to things that are of environmental concern whether it's um you know saltwater entering aquifers or land desert, desertification in different parts of the world and obviously um, global heating, climate change and so on. And so it's, it just became a time when it wasn't enough to be in the editing business and having knowledge and just voting. I wanted to give my time to help um, awareness and action and um, to bring about change, really, to address these problems.
0: Yeah, and so what was your entry point into starting to address some of these problems? Uh,
1: Well about six years ago I joined a political party here in New Zealand, the Green Party, who are most who's the party that's that's probably by quite a margin well, one of one of just a small number of parties who are really committed to bringing about transformational change to ensure what we do uh, gives us a future, basically. And then um, I think a couple of years ago, seeing in the media, the extension rebellion, sort of occupations of, you know, London and the message they were bringing and the, the way they're bringing that message. And then seeing, you know, the the climate strikes the student strikes and the excitement of Really mobilizing people, a lot of people onto the streets, all kinds of people, people who are not activists, they're not radical, they're normal everyday people saying we're asking for change. And I think you know a lot of people have probably taken heart or strength, um, inspiration from that, and and thought yeah I also want to do something. And that's certainly in my case. So over about the last two years, probably have just been getting involved in a few groups, uh, some of them that are like advocacy, sometimes ad- education, some as activism and some political. Um, and just seeing where um, I'm best to put my time and energy. And that's an ongoing process. And at the moment, I'm still, um, as we mentioned earlier, just being involved in a political campaign. And now it's finished, I've got some time on my hands. So just working out what to do.
0: Yeah, so I guess to give a, a little more detail about your political campaign, I feel like I, I want to give my uh, impression and version of New Zealand politics, and then you can correct me where I am wrong. Sure. Okay, so Aaron just stood for Green MP Canada, a member of parliament candidate in the Nelson region. So this is one of sixty-five kind of equal population areas in New Zealand. So, in the New Zealand Parliament, everyone gets one representative, and then there's also forty-eight party list seats in Parliament. So this means when you vote in New Zealand, you get um, you get to pick your direct representative, and then you also say and in a separate vote or like in a separate you know piece on your ballot this is the party that I think is doing the best work. I'm gonna vote for this party. And then there's also seven Maori electorate seats in parliament as well. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's sounding good. Um, yeah, there's just some important background. We used to have a, the system that is used in um, the UK and to some degree, the way that each state does it in the US for the presidential election, which is first past the post. So quite simply, if you get the most votes um, um, as a party, you get everything and the other party gets nothing. Um, And yeah, so in the 80s, we had some elections where we only had um, electorate votes, so you only vote for your local MP and the person got the most votes obviously wins and no one else gets anything. But what that can mean is if you have a party that gets say, 20% of the votes in every electorate, and it's not enough to win, then you have 20% of the votes nationwide and you get zero representation in, in parliament. And, and so people say, well, the this, this situation is absurd. 20% of our public don't have their voice represented, uh, plus many more, of course. Mm-hmm. So then we, we changed to um, a system which is called proportional representation. Um, and now, as you said, most of the MPs in parliament um, have won a, a, like a local election to be the MP and represent their region and the rest are made up from a list so that overall the number of MPs in parliament reflects the nationwide vote for that party.
0: Oh cool and that that's such a good overview of the advantages of it too and so you did not win your seat but you weren't trying to you're just trying to get more you were just trying to get more green party votes overall so that there's more green candidates in parliament
1: that's right so we're quite a small party with not we don't accept for example any corporate donations just small individual donations which is would, would seem very foreign to a number of countries i'm sure including yourself um so we realize we need to focus on what we do. And we, so we just ask, in almost every case, just ask what we call the party vote. And that will help us, as you say, get more um, MPs in parliament. Um, and so I here in Nelson, I wasn't asking for people to vote for me on that vote, but the other vote I was asking for, the party vote.
0: Okay. And I guess a I guess question that's discussed a lot here with my friends here is what is the difference between labor, which is the left-leaning one of the two large parties in New Zealand that Jacinda Ardern is head of, and Greens?
1: Okay, so I guess on the political spectrum, the Greens are further to the left than labor. Labor sort of came out historically. They they were born through the labor movement like unionism and so on. Mm Um, and that's commonly been a focus for them. And today they are a large mainstream, quite centrist, um, left-leaning party who are not probably not very nimble and not quick and, and don't have a great appetite for change. Hmm. So certainly watching the polls, certainly wanting to be in power. The Greens in contrast are a younger party, just 30 years, reformed 30 years ago and, um. Have a real focus on environmental and social justice and have a focus on change and have uh, founding principles that guide us so that we always come back to those principles rather than looking at the polls Um, or to some degree we look at the polls and try and please voters but we say look this is who we are and what we stand for Um, we hope you'll vote for us rather than saying ah the voters are asking for this we'll give it to them And whatever that might be, and um, through sort of through being popular, we hope to get into um, Parliament. So, yeah, the Greens are more, have a greater appetite for change than Labour, and certainly would embrace transformational change in the context of justice, all all forms of justice, social and environmental.
0: Wow, I love that overview. And that's... It's it's like almost sad to hear something so <laughs> inspiring because I guess in the U.S. It, it really feels like, yeah, opinion and polls are driving everything in the elections. And yeah, it's difficult sometimes to say this, public, this piece of public opinion doesn't seem correct. And so I really like the idea of the party itself being like, here's what we're standing for. Vote for us if you think these are good ideas, basically.
1: Yeah, well, in a sense... Um... If the public demands something it is democracy if a politician, politician says i'll give it to you you know because that way in democracy you know the pol- the parliament the politicians should to some degree reflect public opinion and the public should be driving that whole process um but of course there's always a good a good thing to do as a politician because you might as public mood change you might be changing your stance yeah, you know, quite dramatically and people say well, what do you really stand for who are you can i depend on you and so on. And of course, the public or well, the majority are not always right. And the majority, well, there's this concept in politics or philosophy of the tyranny of the majority. And, um, you know, if you have a society with a number of different groups divided upon any kind of grounds, and if you have a majority who uh, only have their self interest at heart, and it's a uh, healthy democracy, but it's done entirely by voting, and then they that majority could potentially just vote for themselves their own, you know, policies that benefit themselves and not other groups repeatedly. And that's, that's sort of the, the tyranny tyranny of majority. And uh, obviously, it's not a healthy thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope the Greens, you know, in this country, without, you know, founding uh, principles and so on, we're always very clear and consistent. People know what they'll get when they vote for us.
0: Yeah, wow. Um, So do you know, are you gonna keep like working with the Greens? Like what are you, you know, you you just did this kind of intense political campaign. And if you wanna talk about what that was like, that would be awesome. But I also am curious kind of what you're thinking next.
1: Okay, so good question. so, the Greens are organised with three branches or petals, as we like to call them. One is the caucus, which is the members of parliament. Another is exec, which is the, basically the day to day running of the party. And then policy, um, the group that's um, charged with sort of bringing about and maintaining and, and um, developing and then retiring policies. So, I'm on the policy committee, which is a lot of fun uh, for a word nerd. And um, it gives you a great insight into what's going on, and and what we actually um, say about different subjects, um, policy areas. So that that continue, I'll I'll be doing it for at least a few years, I should think. Um, Also involved in, I'm trying to get involved in a group that's going to review the election and the campaign and what went well and what, you know, wasn't so good and how we can improve for next time. So I look forward to that. Otherwise, there's potential to be um, a candidate again, and that process of certain candidates will, and so on will start in a couple of years, and we'll see how that goes. I'm pretty keen to be involved in some way. So, what was the campaign like? Well, first, it was unusually long because of COVID. <laughs> so, so the um, election was delayed by a month, so it added a month to everyone's campaigns. Um, but the process, at the start of the year, I was thinking I would be involved like delivering pamphlets something like that. I was very happy happy to help out. Um, But as it was, somebody suggested that I sort of put my name forward to be a candidate. And I thought, wow, I was willing to help and to be involved. And that's really being involved. So maybe I should do it. Um, And it's quite a process to be selected and and sort of have to explain to um, members in the region and then to a national sort of body and people who are selecting candidates who you are and what you stand for and what you think you can bring and so on. Um, and then being a candidate, there were a lot of new things. So, a bit like when I started the editing business, I enjoyed that because I was doing a lot of stuff I'd never done before and learning a lot. So, um, there was a lot of learning involved in dealing with the media and writing uh, media releases and handling interviews, both for people doing print media and radio and so on. And then, um, candidate debates and how they work and how to be effective and how to communicate your message and what is your message and how you deal with um, hecklers and, and what the other candidates are saying. Um, so there was it was great. It was I really enjoyed it. The biggest danger I think was for most candidates is exhaustion. So if you do get too tired, then you can there's a risk you stop enjoying it so much you'll find it more difficult. Obviously, you won't be as, as performing at as high a level as you'd like to. So it's a bit matter of managing um, your workload and getting enough sleep and so on. That's probably the most important factor for me during the campaign. And then there was just a lot of, um, people are just wanting things from you. (laughs) It ranges from really formal, big things like sort of streamed live streamed debates, hosted debates, and to just people sending you emails with their great ideas for solving various problems that probably wouldn't solve the problem.
0: (laughs) um yeah I think we even get some of those sometimes <laughs> <It> <laughs> some works. of them
1: some of them get into office
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I've uh, forwarded you an email about a policy question <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. oh yes I was thinking of you Joyce yes <laughs> it was too polite to say
0: um so is all the stuff you're doing with Green Party is that on a volunteer basis or do people get paid for that kind of work
1: yeah, uh, well, not many. Uh, if in, in my case, it's a volunteer, and um, but it's a good thing because when you're a candidate and so on, you, you can say to people, you might be thinking, why am I doing this? There's no job at the end of it. End of it. There's no pay. It's certainly not glamorous, <laughs> despite what you might see on TV shows and movies and so on. Um, and then you it's a chance to say why you are doing it. People might genuinely wonder. It's because you believe in certain values that you haven't you know, common and the the party's values, and you're concerned about certain issues, and you have a vision that you want to see brought into reality, and and you want a certain life for yourself, and you want things for your rivers and the wildlife and your children, and and so on. So hopefully, and not all politicians sort of do this from their heart, but you know, as as a sort of small time, a first time candidate um, for a party like the Greens, that's why you're doing it from your heart. And If you can convey that, um, it's an important part, you know, of being a candidate.
0: Yeah, I've really loved to watch the Green Party here. Like the two leaders also just really seem to be kind of serving and like there's like a kindness to them. Um, Like whereas in in the U.S. you'll hear people say like, oh, you just can't do it if you're like too too nice, basically, Mm. Um, which is a really sad, (laughs) sad idea. So...
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. And in some contexts, it's probably, possibly correct. But thankfully, in New Zealand politics, you you can go a long way, as as with the co leaders of the Green Party, um, by simply being, you know, kind, and pleasant, and respectful, and honest, and and genuine, and not playing political games, and and not scheming, and so on. And as you say, serving, unfortunately, we have quite a few Politicians and even prime ministers in recent decades who do—they're in it to serve them. They're not in it for themselves. And the ones who are in it for themselves, you can generally see that pretty easily, both in this country and other countries. Um, but you know, <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's a nice thing to have politicians. You and you see the way they dress, and so you think, well, they're obviously not in it for themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, the things they do in the weekend and so
0: on. Yeah. Um, I guess what, I have two questions, I guess, like, you know, you're kind of, you've like been editing for like 10 or 15 years. You've like seen a lot of climate change literature. You've been involved in activism. Do you have kind of a hopeful outlook? Do you think we're going to solve some of these issues like climate change and biodiversity crises?
1: Um, yes, we will Address them eventually. Um, unfortunately, some of the progress might only really happen once we just feel um, the impacts, you know, directly and in a catastrophic sort of way. Uh, so it might come to that. But there's always progress. Progress is in the right direction. Um, awareness is growing. Political will is growing. Um, we passed, you know, zero carbon legislation um, last year. So with Um, with the stated goal of being carbon neutral by 2050. And hopefully we'll, we'll bring that even closer. Um, So the frameworks are being put in place. And then this implementation and, you know, the momentum is definitely in the right direction. So I I am hopeful. Um, A lot of the changes will be quite difficult. And we still will rely on having a much greater proportion of the population supporting the changes than they then do today. Most of those changes would be very difficult, if not impossible to put into place today, because the public firstly, perhaps are not ready, they don't understand them, um, don't so wouldn't support the changes. So it, it is a gradual process. And it's not just the politics that are moving slowly, slowly, it's the public mood and public appetite and so on. And it's a matter of knowing a good politician will sense when the Public will support something because if you bring it in too early, um, and there's a big problem, it, it can delay progress for quite some time. Huh. Whereas if you waited just a, a, a bit longer until you thought the public appetite was there, and then it, it would hopefully be successful. So there is there's a bit of strategy and looking for the right timing in terms of progress. Um, I, I think we will act on climate change because it directly affects us. Uh, it will be probably even more difficult the biodiversity aspect because um, yeah, you know, we, we act out of self-interest to some degree and the whole biodiversity thing involves a lot of returning the land rewilding and giving other creatures simply space to live. And we will have to give up some of our lands, our farmlands, you know, lands that were cleared and so on. And that's not just sort of a change of behavior or a change in emissions that's giving up or, you know, returning something to nature. And Uh, we'll see how we we'll see how the public mood goes on that
0: yeah and it's not even just the public mood I guess I mean I guess if the public mood goes strongly enough then you can think about buying up land but yeah it's just landowners themselves to some degree being willing to literally give up a bit of their wealth is sometimes how land gets rewilded
1: yeah, yeah, there are quite a few different models or approaches to these, you know, how to achieve our goals. And I think most of the change we need is is not, is not going to come from individuals, it has to be what systemic changes, you know, at the, at the highest level, so that sort of government and, and organized at the scale of either regions or nationally. And so to some degree, some degree, individuals won't have to take losses or lose things because we will pull the problem at the largest scale and then solve it at that scale so sort of people will be taken care of by this sort of system level changes we make um, and I, I don't know what all those changes will be but obviously there needs to be big changes in land use and as I said rewilding and protecting we can't you know farm right up to the edge of rivers um, and we can't all be driving our you know, private mo- motor vehicles ourselves, burning fossil fuels. Um, it's one person in a car every day, and so on. So, everyone will need to ch- ha- uh, make changes. And hopefully, there will just be this big sense of yes, we need to do it. We will help each other out. And let's go forward and be brave and actually um, make this transition to a way of living that is fit for the next 100 years.
0: Yeah. And oh, gosh, yeah, I just hope it happens quickly basically it is it's a strange time because it does seem like there's you can get an impression like uh that like people do seem very aware of climate change here um somewhat aware of like biodiversity but then really little things like keeping cats inside to protect native bird wildlife and You know decreasing parking to just start making public transit more appealing like those things people seem both like very against and yeah it's it it starts to feel quite entrenched i guess when
1: yes so it's yeah it's easy for people to support general ideas um but then specific changes there will always be at least some people who will say well i don't agree with that or it might have a negative impact on me and so on um, so it's it's a matter of you know finding solutions and compensation and and change. I, I think if we get most of the population to agree that for the first time we're we're going to make changes so that we live in some kind of sustainable way for the first time in the history of civilization, ten thousand years or so, um, then and people need to kind of let go of things, let go of the idea that we have to live this way or we have to travel this way we have to have this kind of house and just reimagine be free to reimagine how we might live um so that people and the planet have a healthy future Um, the whole process will be easier but we need a lot of um kind of psychologists to help everyone understand how they're feeling about these issues and, and how they feel about change. I guess change managers are going to be very valuable (laughs) in the next few decades.
0: Yeah. I've been thinking about how hard it must be for, I guess, kind of your generation and older to, to process, okay, what you've done, it's not sustainable. We need to reevaluate everything because it, it takes, I guess, a lot of humility to say, I didn't, I didn't, I could have done this differently. I could have done this better and we all need to do this differently. It's, it's, yeah, exactly what you said. I think everyone needs a therapist to help kind of guide them through social and environmental justice issues.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of identity tied up in with the way we do things. So by asking somebody to change an aspect of their life or their behaviors, they feel that they're having to change themselves, their essential identity Um, So for example, if uh, if you do believe in um, sort of individual freedoms and small government, then you're going to be less likely to agree on taking action on climate change, because we we don't have the freedoms. If we want to address climate change, we we must give up the freedom to endlessly burn fossil fuels, for example, that's one freedom we will have to change. And there will be a lot of the changes will have to happen at the governmental level, so the government will be involved. So and I can see how some people who see it as part of their personal identity that they are libertarians or, you know, they, they advocate for freedom, of individual freedom and small government, not only do they have to contend with the problem of uh, climate change and how to fix it, they have to contend with wrestling with their own ideology or their own identity to allow them to make those changes or to support the changes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's tricky.
0: Yeah, wow. Um, Okay, so I don't know, that that covers a lot of what I wanted to ask you. And so I wonder if there's anything else you're like, oh, I really want to talk about this or should we leave it there? What do you think?
1: Um, No, that's all pretty good. I mean, if if I was to have some closing thoughts, I would say that um, if we learn a little bit more about our history and that social history, you know, the history of our, our region, um, political history, and right back into Earth history, geology, um, that we understand how we got where we are today. And a lot of it is not planned in any reasonable or rational way with intention of a good outcome. It's, it's a series of different reasons that lead us to where we are today. And some of them are completely unexplainable. And as I say, few of them. Um, with a few of those reasons were designed or proposed in order to give us a long sort of healthy life as a society in, the, in a healthy environment. So I think if people do have that context, you'll realize we will realize that the way the world is today is different to even quite recently and a long time ago. And the, the way the world will be in the future will be quite different again, regardless of we act, if we act on climate change or not. So So the only constant is change and we should is as involved and knowledgeable as we can about bringing about change, so that we get something that's a good result for people and for the environment. And we 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 have the opportunity to reimagine our future and not be afraid of it and to be brave. And to and we need to let some things go. You know, that, that's the big thing. We we will have a low energy future no matter what, um, and we just have to say, okay, I'm not going to fly around the world a lot in the future, and uh, I'll probably Going to ride my bicycle and um, and my diet might be a bit different, and so on. And and some people in our society are already living in a low carbon way, and they're essentially the way they're living now is future proofed. And they're not going to be too worried at all about future changes. And we just have to get more people into that same mindset.
0: Yeah, and I guess shifting thoughts about or just asking people what actually makes you happy is it really, you know, burning unlimited fossil fuels, or is it like hanging out with your family and friends and having mm. some time off of work and yeah, enjoying your life.
1: Yeah. Well, unfortunately we have created systems that for quite a number of people. What does actually make them happy is say shopping or buying expensive clothes or getting certain clicks on social media and so on. Um, and, and it's cause that these things trigger, um, quite powerful, uh, sort of chemical, feedbacks in our bodies, the various reward systems, and so on. Uh, But you're quite right, if if our values are to do with, um, yeah, family and, and health and cycling to the river and having a swim and so on, then yeah, bring on the changes, let's get to work. (laughs) But if they if they are putting on my (laughs) eight diamonds, and flying on my private jet to somewhere and having eight staff to serve me cocktails, then I'm, I'm not probably ready for the changes. Yeah. That's, that's not me by the way.
0: <laughs> Are you sure?
1: <laughs> I've only got six diamonds.
0: Yeah. And you only have five, four staff. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> um, okay. Aaron. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah. Thanks for your service.
1: Well, it was great to chat with you, Joyce, and um, yeah, any other time?
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on social media, and we'd love to know what you think of the show. We'll see you next time.